Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome back. Some of you may know that for the book I'm writing, I'm doing this deep dive into wines. You may have seen that for the past two years, I've gone to Italy to help with the grape harvest and just learn all I can about this glorious fermented product. A friend of mine suggested that I look into the classes offered at the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, otherwise known as WSET. There's a school here in London, so I kind of thought, why not? If you're interested all around the world, by the way, there are classes offered everywhere, just about everywhere, both in the classroom and online. So you can look into if it's an option for you. Go to www.wsetglobal.com to find out more about the qualifications and where to study. So I decided that it would be a good idea for me to really educate myself on the broader wine world, even though for my book, I really am focusing on Italy. Really, I thought of this as a life skill. You know what I mean? So I took WSET level two, passed the exam, and I wanted to give you all a sense of what that whole experience was like. So it began after one of my intensive all-day wine classes when I pulled aside Lydia Harrison, a teacher at WSET. I'm with Lydia, who just talked to me all about so many different kinds of wines. We tackled rosé and whites. And hi, Lydia. Hello. All right. So how long have you been working with and for WSET? So I've been here since 2013, so just over six years now. So you actually took these courses before you even ever worked here. Absolutely, yeah. So I took them when I was working in retail. I took my level three and then my diploma and then started to teach in-house. And then I moved across to teaching full-time here at the WCT. So talking to the other people taking this class with me, it seems like some people come at it from the industry like you did working at Majestic Wines and other people are just kind of interested and like who knows with the future. What kind of people are are interested in taking a class like this or would you say should take a class like this? That's the beauty of it wine is kind of open to everyone so we have about 50% of people across our qualifications that are trade more so probably at the higher levels but particularly now at levels one and two a lot of people that do completely different things for their day job but they just like wine you know wine and food has become you know experiences that people really want to enjoy and they want to know a little bit more about and especially at level two it's a great qualification for people you don't have to have any prior knowledge in wine you can just you know come along with enthusiasm be prepared to do a little bit of work, taste some great wines and learn learn about it. And what's the age range of people who take level two? Yeah, we really have a, a real whole mix of students. So as well as coming from all different career paths, um, we have... Um, everything from people that are retired that just want to do a wine course to to some people that are working in hospitality and perhaps have just started out in the wine world uh, and everything in between and we also attract from all different international um, countries as well so about 50% of our students come from outside the UK so it's always really nice um, with students in a classroom environment as well because they get to meet lots of other students with different backgrounds um, and different different you know interests in wine so yeah it's really really varied there's no sort of one set student type. I see that just in my experience so far. I met a girl from the Ukraine who came in just for this class and I'm sitting next to a guy who's first year in uni who has done work with hospitality and yeah, that's awesome. Wine brings people together. 
Amen. <laughs> Do you have a favorite wine? Oh, um, yeah, it really depends on what mood you're in and, you know, what season it is, um, what time of day. Uh, but I always say if it was Desert Island and I could only take, obviously I'd have to take two wines, um, but I would say white, white Burgundy. I love a good oak Chardonnay um, and then a really aged red Bordeaux. All right. I will be on a desert island with you. <laughs> I had mentioned my seatmate, Tom, and how he's not who I would think of as the average wine specialist, but he was so into these classes. I pulled him aside after class one day to give us a sense of the variety of people who take these classes. So uh, I've just finished my first year at Durham University, uh, where I'm, I'm studying music, actually. No way. Um, so, <laughs> so awesome. the yeah, I mean, the... I initially, I did level one purely out of interest. I'm doing this purely out of interest. I occasionally do hospitality work to make extra money during my holidays, but it's not at all fundamental, really. So it's quite nice that it's also for, and they make the point on the website, it's also for enthusiasts. You don't have to be in the wine industry or the restaurant industry to do it. Um, or, you know, although there are plenty of people from uh, from the restaurant industry and the restaurants, I know plenty of restaurants that put people through these course, courses because it helps them that much with their, their job. Well, and that makes sense that enthusiasts, it's good for enthusiasts. I feel like I'll be such a more knowledgeable purchaser of wine in the future, you know? Yeah, no, no, no exactly. Um, I think it's quite nice because it means you can... You can talk to sommeliers and restaurants and you can talk to wine waiters and bartenders and have a decent conversation with them. I think there's a good, good point made about, you know, you know, you know wine laws, you, you know the regions and the norms of the regions. So actually, yeah, you made a good point about as a purchaser, you know what to look for now and you're not just buying, you know, wines that just have a great variety on the front because you know what it is. You now know where to find this great variety. Um, so I think it probably broadens your mind really and it kind of makes you look at bottles that you wouldn't otherwise look at perhaps. So how do you feel about the exam tomorrow? I, yeah, I, I think it should be fine. I'm, it's lucky it's multiple choice. Um, I think the difficult part is going to be pinpointing great variety with regions and countries and regions within countries, obviously. Um, I think that is quite that is a memory game in itself. Um, that's the part that I'm probably a bit nervous about. And then Italian, Italian wine as well, which I don't really have a great base knowledge about. Um, and there we are alone tomorrow. I'm going to have to do a lot of the work tonight. Um, but I, yeah, those, those are the parts that I'm a bit nervous about. Everything else I think should be fine. But, uh, but yeah. Tom, thanks so much and happy studying tonight. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, likewise, likewise. <laughs> All right, I am studying for the WSET level two exam and there is just so much to know. So I'm kind of cramming here right before the exam and have to remember Sauvignon Blanc is high acidity, it's aromatic, dry. There was so much to study. I mean, yes, it's been a hot minute since I've been in school, but I was overwhelmed, but also really excited. The wine world is massive which I knew going into it, but I don't think I fully understood just how coded the labels are and how confusing and specific it is when it comes to which grapes are grown where. So it grows in Napa Valley, the Central Valley in Chile, Casablanca Valley, it grows in South Africa in Elgin and Constantia. So geography is a huge part of this qualification. Margaret River, New Zealand, Marlborough. But my theory was that the only way to not be intimidated by it was to learn more about it. 
and to ask questions, always ask questions. And as I mentioned at the top of the pod, I passed the exam, whoop, whoop, got my level two certification, and now it's up to me to decide if I want to continue on to level three, and then level four is the diploma level. Lydia, who you heard earlier in the episode, not only completed all of the qualifications at WSET, she then went on to become a master of wine. This is epic. This is like the highest of the high. And it's a world that is still largely run by older dudes, which is the stereotype. But that is changing. And I think that Lydia really exemplifies that. So I asked her if we could chat again and this time dive a little deeper. Hi, Lydia. Hello, Casey. I was really struck when you were teaching our class, just like everything about you, kind of like your vibe. You're like young and cool and knowledgeable and kind of made things relatable. And one of the things that has changed since you taught me what was a couple months ago, I guess, is that you are now an official master of wine. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you for your compliments on the lesson. Um, I'm not that young, but obviously they they can't see me, so that's... That's okay. Um, but yes, I passed my Master of Wine at the end of August. So I've had a couple of months celebrating since then. So for any of the listeners wondering, what is a Master of Wine? How, how would you answer that? So it's the kind of ultimate uh, qualification in the wine world. Um, and yes, there's only 390 of them in the world uh, now. So it's... 390 of us, don't you mean? <laughs> yeah, 389 others, including oh, me, oh. and then including me, 390. Um, yeah, globally, worldwide. So pretty prestigious qualification. Um, it takes at least three years to do it, um, but some people it takes longer because you're kind of constantly jumping hoops. So you have to do uh, an entrance exam to get on the course, and then uh, there's three stages, each of which is... Uh, heavily assessed. (laughs) What's the difference between being a master of wine and a sommelier? Like some people may have seen the movie Psalm, right? And seen how intensive that is, which I think just a taste of some of the stuff you would have gone through. But what's that difference in qualification? So they're of equivalent kind of stature, um, but the MS uh, is one institute, the MW, the Master of Wine, is a different institute. Um, The main thing is uh, sommelier is mainly done for sort of hospitality professionals. So there's a lot more focus, as you probably see in the film, of them uh, having to do tastings in a live environment and, uh, you know, sort of uh, acting like they would in a restaurant setting. So it's much more focused on sort of immediate recall. Uh, Master of Wine still is... um, you know, high level uh, qualification. It's just anyone can do it. So it's not focused so much on service or on that aspect of it because I don't work in a restaurant. Um, so you have winemakers, educators, people even outside the trade. So it's it's more sort of overview. Um, whereas the, the MS is, you know, mainly, I don't know of anyone that would do that who doesn't work in, in the restaurant hospitality scene. And so you got into wine, again, not through hospitality, but you were on the retail side of it, right? Yes. So I used to work for Majestic Wine. It's a retailer in the UK. Um, I started there after university, did all my WCT, level three and level four with them and started teaching in-house with them. And yeah, used to manage some of their their branches. WSET is how it's said it, right? It's not WSET. 
Oh God, please don't say that. Yes, it's WSET. It's the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. It doesn't need to be shortened or, or abbreviated. It doesn't really make sense any other way. So yeah, it's the WSET. Um, and yeah, we t- teach all things wine, spirit, even sake now as well. Um, and it was initially set up to educate the trade, but now nowadays the like the level two course that you did is about 50-50 consumers versus people in the trade. So open to anyone that wants to learn more about wine, spirits or sake. I definitely got that feeling in my class. I was surrounded by some people who are just really interested and this seems like fun and I want to learn more. And who some people who were thinking maybe in the future I could do something with this. Right now it's just a passion, but uh, let me take this class and let's see where it can go. And there were other people who were like importers and clearly more involved. So that was really interesting. The level one, who are the people who take that more kind of introductory course? Again, it can be uh, it can be trades or, or consumers, um, but usually like at the beginning of their journey. So it might be someone that's just uh, started working in a restaurant or a pub or just started working for an employee. So it's a very more sort of introductory course. Um, and you don't have to do the level one to do the level two. Um, but yeah, I think it's really good to start at the basics and then build your knowledge up from scratch. And that way you haven't sort of learned anything that you're, you're not supposed to um, or, you know, sort of adapted any bad... Uh, adopted any bad habits right you don't have to unlearn things before you learn more and then okay and then hopping to level three everything I've heard is that like this is where it gets real like real real like you have to taste wines and know like for the exam there is an actual tasting um is what do you what do you think and I'm you know what I'm trying to decide what I want to take level three but it seems like it is quite an intense step yeah, I mean, people can go as far as they like. Level two, I think, is a really good, it's a three-day course or equivalent, really good kind of grounding in the key great varieties and styles. But I think like with anything, once you start learning, you want to, to know a little bit more and people are naturally curious about wine. Uh, it's why I ended up, you know, getting all the way to the master of wine. You just sort of keep going. Um, and level three, I think, yeah, you can naturally sort of stop after level three. Not everyone wants to progress to the diploma, which is very serious, kind of like a degree in wine. But level three, um, is more detail you do need to know more um, but the fact that it has a tasting element and um, some short answer questions in the theory as well shows that you have a bit of a broader understanding and a better at being able to explain your knowledge so I, th- I think uh, if you're really interested in wine it gives you just that sort of slightly higher level skills so the way that you talk about how you became a master of wine was like you kind of just kept following your curiosity <laughs> you kept yeah. poking the interest bear if you will and um, and then you ended up with Master of Wine. So at what point did you realize, oh, this is like uh, this is my thing. I'm going to go deeper and deeper. Uh, it took me a while to finish. So I did my diploma pretty early. Um, I passed in 2009 my diploma. So after that, I was like, I want a break from studying. Um, but after a while, obviously, I've been teaching here at the WCT for six years. And as an educator, you're naturally kind of constantly learning and wanting to know more. And it just became the kind of natural next step. I was hesitant. I didn't want to dedicate so much, you know, so many years and study and, and time and money to something and not have the possibility of passing which is the case for the master of wine it's a sort of low pass rate can you take it again if you don't pass yes you can so there's various sort of stages but you only get certain amount of attempts so and some people sort of not naturally drop out as they as they go either through not passing or you know running out of (laughs) steam um 
but eventually I sort of got the the kick I needed and I just sort of threw myself into it and thought right I've got to give it a shot I love learning uh, I always I did well on my diploma so it felt like the natural natural next step to continue learning and at least at least give it a chance sometimes people describe when they make their hobby their job it be, stops being fun right you hear that trope <laughs> so becoming a master of wine and going as far as you can go into this thing that you love that is also your job I mean what is it like for you what is your relationship like with wine on like a personal level it's good now now I finished studying um, I've I did try and maintain the fun and you have to sometimes not take it too seriously and I try to always keep a sense of humor about studying and enjoying wine and you know I can still just go to the pub and have a you know glass of inexpensive wine with my friends and just enjoy myself and relax um but yes I did sort of really throw myself into it and after sort of nine months preparing for each exam every summer then for two months in the summer I didn't really want to talk about wine I didn't want to read a wine magazine I just had to you know kind of do all my other interests in a really condensed space because then you go back into you know just thinking about wine and talking about wine for another nine months oh yeah I totally get that (laughs) but like okay so I'm I love hearing that you can still go to the pub and get just like you know whatever a cheapish glass of wine but I mean what goes through your mind then do you have to almost like separate that from everything you know or do you just take it for what it is because even I after I've learned more about wine and about what is a good wine and have tasted more and have tasted what's good and bad I mean I'm the farthest thing from a wine snob but the fact that I can taste the differences now I'm kind of less inclined I guess more the difference is like what I choose to purchase for myself but I don't know I would love for you to just talk more about that because you know so much and your tongue knows what's good and what's not as good yeah, absolutely. But I think you, you, you obviously learn to appreciate it more, like you say, and you can taste the difference. But um, equally, there's different wines for different occasions, like anything. And you can be a lover of food and love going to a Michelin-star restaurant, but you're not necessarily going to do that every day. Some days you just want something quite simple or beans on toast or, or whatever it is. Uh, and wine's very much the same. So I think you choose wines for a certain occasion, for a certain budget. Um, obviously, yeah, you learn to kind of appreciate what style you like or learn to kind of pick what's good value or what you'd particularly go for in in different settings um but yes it just gives you the skills to be able to make the best choice in each environment i love how that that metaphor you made with food because it's true right sometimes you just want beans on toast want a tasting menu you (laughs) just want you know a bit of cheese on toast or something yeah exactly i asked my instagram followers what questions they would have for you so i sourced some questions so let's hop right into those questions because I feel like they overlap very much with things that I would ask you anyway. This person asks, if you could drink one variety for the rest of your life, what would it be? That's a really tough question. Again, if you link it back to food, because I think everyone that likes wine generally likes food as well. Um, you know, it's like saying, right, you can only eat one meat or one one type of food. Um, but they did have a similar question in the final part of the MW exam that said, if you were to save two grape varieties, if, you know, all grape varieties were going to inst- extinction, what would you save? Um, and I went for Chardonnay. I'm a, I'm a massive Chardonnay fan. I think it doesn't get enough justice. And I think the styles of wine that you can make from sparkling to you know really sort of big ripe oaky chardonnays uh, i love it so yeah that would probably be probably be my choice that'd be very tough (laughs) 
then next question. Does it extend the life of an uncorked bottle of red wine to keep it in the fridge? Yes, it should do. Um, obviously, it doesn't necessarily seem uh, sensible to put red wine in the fridge because it's not necessarily the temperature you're going to drink it. But chilling anything will preserve it longer. It slows down chemical reactions at cooler temperatures. So it's going to slow down the oxidation. Obviously, it will help if you can pump it. So basically take any of the oxygen out to slow down that process. Uh, so put a, put a cork or a little capsule in the top. Um but yes, it will preserve it for a, for a little bit longer, but it's still going to, within a few days, going to start to deteriorate. This person wants to know, actually, we talked about this before. The question was a little vague, and I think that it's because um, there is some confusion sometimes among drinkers, consumers, um, between what happens in the field and what happens in the cellar to produce wine. So this question was about additives, also kind of talking about organic biodynamic, which, um, you know, this is two different things, cellar and vineyard. So let me ask you just in a broad way to come into this, um, to kind of explain what is the difference between the vineyard and the cellar in making wine? Okay, so the vineyard is where you grow your vines, which produce grapes. Um, and yeah, it's like agriculture. So you're you're farming a, a product, um, and like anything, you can farm organically, which means not using any synthetic pesticides or herbicides or anything like that. You can take that a step further and do biodynamics. Uh, some people practice what they call sustainable practices, so kind of um, not necessarily organic, but just trying to spray as little as possible and really kind of think about the effect on the environment. And then you have your sort of conventional uh, agriculture. And then what about in the cellar? And then in the cellar, you can still sort of, um, especially with sustainable and other practices and organics, we'll still have rules and regulations about the winemaking. Um, but the question particularly about additives, that is something that they would do in the cellar. So that's more something that you would add like a processing aid to either clarify the wine or to find the wine to help get it bright uh, or perhaps speed up the processing. Um, so yes, that's where, it, so when people talk about additives, that's generally something that's added in the cellar. Um, but I think we have to remember that all wine is very tightly regulated. So I think people sometimes get a little bit confused about, oh, there's sulfur in wine or oh, there's, they've used this in the production. Um, generally, you know, it's you're just fermenting grapes into, into juice, into wine. Um, and there are things that you can add um, to speed up that process. And some wines, will, you can add more than others, but everything is very tightly controlled. Nothing is at all um, dangerous. And it's often um, just as a processing aid. So whether it kind of stays in the wine or not is, is debatable. So it's more just to help make the wine look clear and bright because that's what the majority of consumers, if you go to the supermarket and buy a bottle on your Friday night, you expect it to be clear and you don't necessarily want something floating around in the wine, even if it was perfectly natural. So these things that are added are completely harmless. There's very tight controls about maximum levels of any anything that you can do in the winery. This question that this person asked I think is indicative of like there there's a lot of like talk about things in the wine world and especially in certain groups of like natural wine you hear people talk a lot about natural wine but it's not defined right and um and I think that I mean I'm still trying to wrap my head around what it all means um and and WSE 
WSET didn't really touch on that, really. Okay, so yeah, so WSET, obviously, we have to draw the line somewhere in terms of the syllabus. And at level two, you've got this huge wine world that you're trying to fit into a three-day course. Um, And so we cover the key wine grapes and styles. It's not to show that we don't show any wines that are natural or biodynamic or organic. Um, But yes, it's still probably globally a very small percentage of the market. So we have to kind of cover the, the key styles. It is something that we do touch on it on the more in the the kind of higher level qualifications um, my personal opinion is I just like good wine I don't mind so much how it's made because there's there's two sides to every story so for example you could be being organic which is great you're not spraying certain um, things in the vineyard but you are still doing certain treatments to make your grapes healthy and one of those things that they add is um, they use is a lot of copper and there's been research that high levels of copper in the soil is really damaging for the environment so there's always two sides to every argument so you can't just sort of write off and go oh all non-organic wine or perhaps if they spray um, occasionally because their livelihood depends on it is is terrible you know so it's always about balance it's about I think people making the best wine they can in the the situation that they have in the environment they have not all places can be organic it's a lot more expensive and again the you know the average bottle price in the UK is something like five pound 50 or something like that you know people aren't going willing to pay necessarily all that extra cost so I think um as long as the wine tastes good um that's what that's what I go for whether it's natural or conventional um and I do care about the environment, but yeah, there's lots of different, it doesn't mean there's just one way to do it. And there's lots of different practices and a lot of people do do lots of good things in the winery, but aren't necessarily certified for one reason or the other, because it costs money to be certified organic. Next question. What are tannins? So tannins are a natural plant compound. Um, they're in the skins of grapes. So if you ever have a bunch of grapes, you can just peel the skin and chew it or chew the stem. Um, you get this sort of drying sensation. It's the same thing that you also find in black tea. Um, so it's just a natural plant compound that is found in the skin of grapes. It's mainly found in red wines because that's when you use the skins to make the wine because you have the, the this color pigment in the in the skin whereas with white wines you don't get that same drying sensation around your teeth and gums because they just press the grapes so you're just using the juice uh, rather than the skins in the winemaking it is getting a bit geeky but i like it i like it it's the problem once you know more you just sort of delve into it and you can't stop yourself <laughs> okay last audience source questions for a novice what should i look for to tell the basics of whether a bottle is worth my time it's a really tricky one because lots of people have different tastes and you don't know what they would consider worth their time what's maybe worth my time isn't considered you know worth their time um but yes i appreciate wine can be really daunting so there's always little tips and tricks whether it's a great variety that you know you like and you can look for that on a label there's always some information on the label that would tell you uh, either where the wine's from uh, or what they've used to make it so grape varieties are very common ones. So if you like Sauvignon Blanc, you can look out for that. Or if you like, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, you can look for that. Equally, um, you could think about the place. So if you know you like kind of fresher, lighter wines with more acidity and kind of less white flavors and lower alcohol, look for cooler growing places. So places sort of more north in the Northern Hemisphere, so Northern France or Germany uh, or South in Southern Hemisphere, like New Zealand. If you like really ripe, kind of full of 
bodied bigger alcohol wines um so you like things like an aussie shiraz or a malbec from argentina then go for to warmer place countries like that so that's some sort of real real basics if you can find a great variety or region the other thing i'd say is people often kind of conscious about money and want value for money um, but when you don't know enough people always go for the big names or the the name that they feel comfortable with perhaps like Chablis or something like that that they've heard of but actually sometimes going for the weird and wonderful great variety or region that you've never heard of can sometimes be better value for money because it's it's not so widely sought after so places like southern France Italy southern Italy have a whole host of weird and wonderful wines that you should explore and you probably get better value for money Go for weird and wonderful. That's probably my yeah. Be brave. (laughs) Probably my favorite tip thus far. Yeah, I I love that. Well, and I imagine that when you worked retail at Majestic Wines, you got really good at helping people decide what they want, right? What was that process like? Yeah, it's always hard because people have such different tastes. What was great at Majestic is you have a tasting counter because often people aren't so good at being able to vocalize what it is they like about wine. Whereas if you get most people and give them three different white wines and go, okay, which do you prefer? You can normally then start to suss out what their taste is. Um, So that was always really useful and you could, you know, just ask them questions, what price point they were looking for, what were they planning to eat with the wine and kind of go from there? The compare contrast game is yeah. always a good game to play. My parents taught me that from a young age. No, they would they would just like nerd out over like, you know, two bottles of wine and you don't it's a let's do a blind tasting and it's just it's just good fun. Blind tasting is so important to do, I think, because you know, you really start to learn what you taste and what you like because as soon as you see a bottle of wine or a label or a price, you're already making assumptions. So, blind tasting is really tricky, but actually you know sometimes people discover that actually they really like something they wouldn't have thought of trying you know like like when you go clothes shopping and you look at something you think oh no I wouldn't try that on and then actually when you try it on it looks really nice but you wouldn't have necessarily gone for it in the first place you've got all the good wine metaphors (laughs) I am into it I'm into it you just got back from Sao Paulo you were you were presenting or speaking or involved in a festival there Yes, so um, I was really excitedly was just invited to Brazil. So I went to Sao Paulo uh, for a wine kept fair called Provino. It was the first one they were doing. Um, so it's for sort of Latin American uh, countries. So Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay were all uh, represented. Um, and I also did, um, so yes, I did a talk on women in wine um, at the fair. I also did a sherry workshop at a, a WCT provider there called Eno Cultura. Uh, and then I also did a talk on just education in general with um, some other people there about WCT, WCT in, in the Americas um, and just the benefits of wine education. I'm very intrigued by the women in wine presentation talk that you gave what can you give me like a snapshot of what that was like yeah so obviously as a new women woman master of wine and they asked me to do a talk um, and what we looked at was um, different experiences within the the wine trade and and how we've kind of got to where we are today because historically was a quite male dominant industry Uh, and what I wanted to showcase was not just um, different uh, careers so I spoke to a sommelier someone who's a 
collector, consumer, my, myself as an educator, someone that was a, a winery owner, um, to get different opinions from, from different uh, roles within the industry. But I also spoke to people from different markets as well because I wanted to see if it differed, you know, depending where you were in the world. So, for example, the sommelier, Heidi Mackinen, who also became an MW with me this year, she uh, is based in Finland. And that's very different to coming and working uh, where she used to work in 67 Pall Mall in London. Um, and equally, there are people who had uh, opinions on Asia or uh, obviously South America and how they're quite different. So it was just sort of exploring uh, where women were in the wine trade and how we can do more and kind of support each other and looking at some of the organisations as well that are set up to support and empower women in the in the wine trade. And you said historically it's been a male-dominated industry. It's still male-dominated, right? It's, it's really hard to find data. I tried to have a look, look at it. Um, it's interesting. There was a survey on sort of consumers in America, which is very much 50-50. So it's very much even on the consumption side of things. Um, I couldn't find sort of data in terms of how many people work in the industry. It's quite, it's quite hard. Um, but yeah, I mean, I work in education, so it's a lot more even here. We have a lot of female um, lecturers, so it's a little bit different. Um, I'm not sure the sort of the broader picture. Um, but but yes, I think there's, there's still obviously, in, in certain countries, in certain roles, probably more of a male presence, yeah. But it <laughs> yeah. seems like it's moving in the direction of, of more women being involved, um, which is always a good thing. Definitely. I mean, in my time um, in the wine trade, sort of coming up to 15 years, I've definitely seen a shift and just just the diversity and it's not just women I think it's everyone I think there needs to be more younger people more sort of mixed backgrounds um, mixed um, you know ethnicities just everything in the wine trade because it you've got all sorts of different consumers there's so many different types of wine it's for everyone um, and it, you know it needs to embrace that there's, there's a different wine style for all sorts of different people so I think any you know greater diversity just makes your business stronger Um and yet, hopefully, you know, we can get wine to more people. I fully support that. I <laughs> think more wine to more people. September was Wine Education Week. What was that? <laughs> this was great. So it's the WSET's 50th anniversary this year. Um, so we did Wine Education Week. So basically they started, I think it was in New Zealand, and, and they did events globally all through the week, ending uh, in the States. Um, so everyone, so lots of different countries signed up and lots of different providers were doing tastings and events all around the world uh, just to celebrate. And it was aimed at kind of just getting more people into wine uh, beginners whatever level and just sort of showing what we do and opening up the kind of wine, world of wine to as, as many people as possible um, so we did an event in London one which you came to which was the attempt to break uh, the Guinness world record for the world's biggest sommelier tasting uh, the the oval in London which you came to um, yeah it was it was pretty epic it was like a huge room full with so many people and then um, um, and we did a tasting, essentially. We went through and tasted wines and sommelier, you know, broke it down for us. It was pretty epic. It was huge, a little bit raucous. Um, but yeah, I think it was great to have so many people in one place all learning how to, to taste and how to do food and wine pairing. It was brilliant. And then is Wine Education Week something that happens every year so that people can keep an 
their eyes peeled for next year? So this was the first year that we um, that we we did it because it was the the 50th anniversary. But I think it was such a success. We did lots of different events. Um, that is definitely something that we'll be looking. Maybe not quite on the same scale next year, obviously, but it's definitely something that we will be looking to do. Um, we did a an event here because it was also Bermondsey Street Festival, and we did a big wine education week tasting uh, for 50 50 drinks. We did 50 um, 50 beverages basically with 10 liquid lessons so we wanted to for the 50 years to show wines some spirits some sake we had 10 tables and you could come around and each table meet a tutor from from the WSET school uh, and try a range of wines spirits uh, sake and learn a little bit about it and it was it was great we had everything covering things like climate to labeling terms in Rioja from uh, you know a Hoven to a Grand Reserva um, we had five different sakes it was great people could just sort of come along try 50 different drinks if they got around the whole the whole room um and yeah it was a really good atmosphere how do you keep it quirky how does a master of wine keep it quirky well, i'm currently working on trying to visit as many wine regions as possible there's still every time you visit anywhere you want to just go to more and more places so this year's kind of uh, been the year of south america as you heard i went to brazil and i'm going to chile for the very first time next month so really excited for that so just trying to keep ticking off countries and regions off my wine bucket list travel travel always helps yeah. um lydia thank you again so much thank you thanks again to lydia you can follow her on instagram at lydia harrison mw and you can follow wset at wset global on instagram and twitter and also follow wine education week that's just at wine education week One of the things that we also covered in our class was sherry and port. They are fortified wines, which means that additional alcohol is added to the wine. I want to take a second and talk about port. Port is produced from grapes grown in the upper Douro region of Portugal, but it is enjoyed all around the world and is a popular beverage, especially around the holidays. And as we're nearing Thanksgiving and Christmas, when this episode goes live, you can probably hear I have a little cold, tis the season. I'd like to wrap up by telling you all about this genius pairing, port and Stilton cheese. And actually, port, both ruby and tawny ports, go with a variety of cheeses. I went to a port and cheese tasting event at Neil's Yard Dairy recently, which is, of course, London's preeminent cheese shop, which I've cheesemongered at and am slightly obsessed with. We tasted and talked about port and cheese. Market as well. How do we make port and Stilton not just for Christmas? That is the holiday conundrum. That was Francis Percival, a wine writer and wine expert in his own right, and he moderated a panel between Neil's Yard Dairy's Bronwyn Percival. Bronwyn, who has been on the podcast before, she was episode 14, The Fight for Real Cheese, and we are now on episode 52, so dig back and find that. So she had a discussion for this event with the following two men who I'm about to introduce you to who know lots about port. Uh, my name is Jan Konetsky. I'm director of wine at Four Seasons 10 Trinity Square. And uh, my Instagram handle is Bloody Sommelier. Isn't that so good? All right, and Dirk, please introduce yourself. Uh, so my name is Dirk Nieport. I'm Dutch, but I have a Portuguese heart. And I'm the fifth generation of a family making port and wine in the Douro. So we are here today um, at Neil's Yard Dairy for an epic conversation and tasting about 
preparing pork and cheese. I'm not going to lie. I had never really considered it that much, but the moment I did, I was like, this is amazing. Why doesn't everyone talk about this? So what are some of the main points you're going to try and get across today? Um, well, I think that uh, port and cheese are um, two very natural partners and they also have a lot of shared history. So from the serving and wine perspective for restaurants, I think that uh, we are just putting uh, port and cheese a little bit in the end of the meal after your main course, but there are much more ways to incorporate them. Um, and uh, we are going to look at the different styles of port wine, the uh, the fresh and uh, more reddish rubies and the slightly nuttier tawny styles, but also uh, styles which are a little less looked at, like late bottled vintage and aged white ports, to, for people to see that sweetness and the alcohol content can really work with the richness and flavors of cheeses. So I'll leave you with that. Try some port and cheese together this holiday season and beyond. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks to WSET for this collaboration. And you can follow them at WSET Global. Go to www.wsetglobal.com for more information. And thanks to the musician who wrote and performed the Keep It Quirky theme song, Funky Brian. He's at BQ Funk on Instagram. I hope your holiday season is kicking off with lots of warm fuzzies. See you back here soon. And until then, don't forget to keep it quirky.